We're in chapter four in our study of James. We covered last week, most of the hour was on the issue of wisdom, which in our little pinwheel is here. Now, what I did is I shifted over here to rejection of worldliness. So the theme until we get to the end of the book. Chapter four deals with worldliness. That is not the biblical word that's used here, although the term world is used in these verses. So I have taken the liberty because of how James describes it uh, as a, an address or a, a focus on world, worldliness. And just a reminder, as we've worked our way through the book, James is painting the picture of what the justified life looks like. He does not tell us how to get justified. He doesn't explain that. He assumes it. And wisdom, which is what we covered last week, in your notes, if you use your notes or your, remember on page 17, I gave you a copy of two PowerPoint slides that I've used when I taught this. <clears throat> that again, what I'm doing is I'm fleshing this out even more fully than I did on the chart that I gave you guys that weren't here last week. And that is also uh, Glenn sent out. But it's just, it's a way to compare these two because James is saying, a person who's justified will appeal to heavenly wisdom and reject earthly wisdom. And, and again, the, the characteristics and dynamics of that we talked about last week and in the chart I gave you, plus this that's in your notes, fleshes that out even more fully. It is so important to me, uh, as I conclude this before we start chapter four, it is so important to me that young Christians, not chronologically, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're young or old, but young Christians, people just trusted Christ, whatever the chronological age might be, is they begin to understand that part of the call to be a disciple of Christ is to be a person who's wise. And often wisdom, the exercise of wisdom or the utilization of wisdom, is in the non-moral areas of life. Areas of life to which the Bible has not specifically spoken. And so, as Solomon does in the book of Proverbs with his children, particularly in the first nine chapters, he keeps calling them to be wise, to be wise, to be wise. Son, if you're wise, do not go down to the red light district. You know, he's condemning us, but he's saying, if a wise person won't even go near there. A wise person is a person who manages and stewards his resources well. A, a wise person is a person who takes time and regards it as a stewardship and manages his or her time well. That, that, there are aspects of wisdom. The Bible doesn't specifically say divide your days into blocks of time and faithfully do what you It doesn't tell us. It just says be wise in your management of time. And so that call to wisdom is such an important call. And I, and when I was raising my children, that was one of the things I tried to drill into them. And Peggy and I, my wife and I, tried to model for the kids that wisdom involves a lot of different virtues, a lot of different choices. And then finally, in, in the Old Testament, there is one of the about cluster of five or six words that are associated with wisdom. One of those words is translated discernment. And I used to tell my kids, and they would not hear the first part, they would hear the second part. Be discerning. And they would look at me, I have no idea what that means. But discerning is, discernment as a noun is, insight into the consequences of your choices. 
And that, that, that to me, uh, among many other things, is an incredibly valuable virtue that people need to learn. <clears throat> Young children are not discerning. Well, you, you know that. A five-year-old is not discerning. They're impulsive. They just act. <laughs> they don't even think about the consequences of choices. But as you get older, and I don't mean 80, I mean even in your 20s, you should develop or begin to develop that quality called discernment. And that's what James is calling us to in, in this section that we, we, we looked at. Now, as an aspect of that, he shifts into chapter 4 and addresses an aspect that relates to wisdom. It's how do you deal with the world? And that word world, which will be used in verse 4, for example, word world is a simple Greek word, is cosmos. But it doesn't mean the physical world, you know, outside, you know, see all the trees and the bushes and the flowers and the sky and all that. That's not what he's talking about. World, the way he's using it, Jesus uses it that way, the Gospel of John uses it that way, is that system that stands opposed to God over which Satan rules. And it's important for you and me to remember that this, this world, earth, inhabited by human beings in rebellion against God, is a dominion of Satan. This is the kingdom of darkness. The Bible calls it that. Colossians 1.13, for example. And so how do, we're to, Jesus says to us in John 17, 13-18, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. As I am in the world, but not of the world. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever thought much about that in terms of what Christ was talking about in John 17. But when I came across that years ago, I was studying and I was supposed to teach John and, and so on at a church. I, all of a sudden, that baffled me. How in the world am I going to teach this? Because you read something, I'm going to be in the world, but not of the world, and immediately you start taking it apart. Immediately, instantaneously, you start feeling tension. How can I be in the world, but not of the world? Because what I want to do is separate from the world. I want to take my kids up on a mountain and just wait for Jesus to return. But that's not a wise way to raise children today. You have to help them. How do I function in this world, but not be of this world? That's what James is talking about in this chapter, or this part of chapter 4, first 17 verses. And so there's a lot of introductory stuff there, but I, I want to kind of orient you to thinking about what James is discussing here. It's extremely relevant for you and me in 2022. But he begins with something, and we briefly talked about this last week. He begins with something that was a presumably, we're assuming this, was going on in the churches of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, which is verse 1 of chapter 1, whom he's writing to. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And so <clears throat> James is addressing an issue which I don't think any of you have any difficulty understanding. You don't get along with people often. There are struggles of interpersonal relationships with people. In our lives, we have concentric circles. We have the concentric circle of our nuclear family. If, if you're, you're married, you're your spouse, uh, your children, that's your, that's your first concentric circle. Then your extended family, and then your church, and then your workplace, neighborhood, etc., and so on. And so 
apparently what James is talking about here is things going on, not so much within the family, but within the family of leaders, the church. Battles within the church, struggles within the church, interpersonal breakdown, relationships within the church. Is that an abstract concept or you can you get your arms around that? If you're around people, immediately are you around people, you're going to have disagreements. You're going to have people seeing things differently, and you can have, quote, battles, close quote. We have absolutely no idea what is, is in back of James's idea here, why he raises this question. He doesn't tell us the specifics. He's just saying this is really important. These Greek words that he uses for quarrels and fights are very intense words. The first one, fights, or quarrels rather, is, is a term that can be used militarily. And quarrels are more individual. The fights are more individual, one-on-one disputes. So these are interpersonal relationship breakdowns between people. And what he does is he answers his question, the first one, by another question. Is it not that your passions are at war within you. And the word for passions, which I talked about last week, because we just read this verse, is hedonism. <coughs> we get our word hedonism from it. Is that, is that a, a, a foreign word to hedonism? That's not. You've heard that word. Hedonistic is you say someone's hedonistic, you're not paying them a compliment. <laughs> so the idea of so it's a, it it. Often in our culture, we associate hedonism with sexual immorality. It's not necessarily true. It can be a lot of different dimensions of, of being hedonistic. It's sometimes translated lusts, sometimes translated desires. ESV, which is what I'm reading from, chooses to translate this passion. So it's this internal self-centered passion. It's all about me type of attitude. So James is saying, okay, here, are these, here are these external interpersonal relationship breakdowns. He says the cause is you. You look at yourself first. Is it not your desires, your passions, <coughs> that are the cause of this? And what he then does, what he then does is he asks, and I, I'm, I'm going to want you to look at this very carefully. He asks a series, he makes a series of statements that illustrate the problem that it's with us. And in a sense, he's going back, and each one of these relates to something in the Old Testament. You desire, and that's a different word. That's not hedonon. That's a different word. We often translate that lust, epithumia. It's a Greek word. You desire and do not have, so you murder. My goodness. <laughs> He goes from these individual quarrels and interpersonal relationship breakdown, breakdowns to this is really serious business. You desire some epithumia. You 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 lust after something, something you don't have. Some some translations even translate that envy. But anyway, he's saying, and so you remember, now I believe that we have to really we have to really understand how James talks about and is using the term murder. It's similar to how his brother used it in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. That's the word he uses. 
But I say unto you, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, if you call your brother a filthy name, even if you call your brother a fool, you're guilty. I think that's what James is talking about. And so it's this internal, this internal hatred, internal anger that will cause you, even though you don't necessarily manifest it by an external act of taking their life. So what James is saying, what's going on inside us? We usually refer to it, and the Bible talks about it that way too, in our heart. That nobody sees but you and God is the reason so often my interpersonal relationships break down. Family and more obviously in the context of this, church relationships break down. As he said back when we were studying in the beginning of chapter 2 about the role of the word in God, let the word of God be like a mirror where it, it focuses on you and you see the things you need to deal with. You're not saying, well, he needs to change and he needs to change and he needs to change. No, no, you focus first on yourself. Word of God is like a mirror. And that's what James is encouraging us to do. Second, secondly, he says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. This self-centeredness, this, let's call it selfishness, which is what hedonone is about in verse 1, and the desire, epithumia, is in verse 2. He says this selfishness can produce a covetousness. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, it's really fascinating. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this. It's really fascinating. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you have the first four deal with relationship with God. The next six deal with relationship with other people. And, you know, the ones reading, honor your father and mother, um, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie. Remember all those things? Number 10, you know what that is? Don't covet. And then the law itemizes a whole bunch of examples. Your, your neighbor's cows, your neighbor's cattle, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, etc. And it's really, it's really interesting. Of all the emotions, those internal heart issues that God could have itemized, he chose covetousness. And that's what James is doing here. You have desires, you're not met. You murder your friend, your neighbor, your church member, maybe your relative. In the way I discussed murder, not just that outward act, but the things that Jesus talked about. As he chooses to covet. Now, I'm going to ask a simple question, and I'm hoping you will be able to answer it as a simple question. What does covet mean? What's covetousness? Something you don't have. Okay. Wanting something you don't have. Really, really want. Yeah, you you really want it. You you covet it, and it's it's not how the various translations are. I'm more particularly the uh, the, the, the translations go trans beyond translate. Give a paraphrase. They'll try to flesh it out. And say you long after, lust after, and can never let go of that thing that you want. It's kind of so. It's, it's covetousness is not just you envy or you're jealous, but covet. You really want that. And he says, covetousness. And that's so fascinating to me. And you can't obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. 
So interpersonal relationship breakdowns, among many other things he could talk about, interpersonal relationship breakdowns can be sourced in covetousness. I want something he has and I can't get it. Whatever those reasons might be why you can't get it. And so <clears throat> what I find, and, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because that's not the main point, but it's, it is very interesting to me that God chose that as the Tenth Commandment because covetousness, and Paul talks about that in two places in his letters, about how devastatingly horrific covetousness is. Because, again, it's the kind of thing that nobody knows you covet that, except you and God. Nobody knows that unless you talk to people about it. Nobody knows. And it can become so controlling. And, what, and again, there's lots of expositors have written a lot of material on the Ten Commandments. But that, that covetousness command is connected to so many other inner emotional things that are in our heart that we wrestle with. And again, unless you talk about it with other people, nobody knows what's going on inside you. And so James is sourcing, not exclusively, but he's sourcing the origins of these fights and quarrels, the same words, in covetousness. I would think that covetousness is, to a degree, the epitome of that selfishness. And self-centeredness. That everything is about me. I am the center of everything. And if I don't get my desires and my wants and what I covet met, I am miserable. <laughs> I'm often glad that the reason for the tenth commandment was to show the, the motivation. I can't remember the legal word for it, but you know the reason for the crime. It explains why you would steal, why you would kill, why you would adultery. Yes. It, it does illustrate. So while it isn't actually impacting somebody yet, it will. Yes. You let it go. Yes. And isn't that one of the major themes of both the law and certainly the Lord Jesus' interpretation of the law? What defiles really is not the external stuff. It's what's going on inside of you. That's what defiling is. That's where defilement is. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's number 10 because it's connected with everything else. At least the don'ts, right? The, 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 the commandments that define your relationship with other human beings. That's right. No, it, it, absolutely. And actually, it, it does affect even your relationship with God, the first four commandments, really. That's, that's Paul's definition of salvation. Please don't assign that to me. Uh, okay. I, it's a wonderful you say profound. It's absolutely, but it's Paul's. It's not mine. 
I didn't come up with that. It's sourced in in Paul's uh, masterful treatment of oh, okay. the yeah, yeah, well, yeah. well, of course, huh? Of course, because that's yeah. when you explained yeah. it. Well, I just, I just meant I, I, I appreciate you saying it, mine, but it, it really is Paul's. But uh, and it, I'll tell you, uh, Rob, I've said this to many, and Fred's been around this. It's been important in his life. For a believer to really understand those three dimensions of salvation really brings an understanding to what God's doing in your life. It helps you understand why you're still struggling with sin, even though you've been justified. I mean, all those things. Oh, I've just, I mean, in my own personal life, as well as in the, the men I've worked with over my life in ministry, for them to understand that opens up a total understanding of what is really going on in my life. Forgive me for brown nosing. No, 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 no. I just wanted to clarify that to make sure that I, I, I wanted to know. Yeah, I came up to the. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I've been nominal Christian all my life. <clears throat> and I have. I, I got to I've never heard anybody explain it with such clarity as you. So, oh, please. those please. of us that have read Paul before and still missed it, what a blessing. Yeah, well, praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Look at his third item. It's in the middle of, of, an, of, of verse, verse 2 there. I think this is also fascinating because he turns now to your relationship with God. You do not have because you do not ask. So he, he's sourcing his way to deal with these quarrels and all the things that are going on in the body of Christ. To internally your desires, your covetousness, but then also it's a, and it's your relationship with God, your prayer life, your prayer life manifests your selfishness and self-centeredness. And so he says, you are praying, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, and that. Word passengers had to know again, the same word he used up in verse one. And so I just find that interesting because what he does, he now shifts your internal issues, your epithumia, your desires, and your covetousness. And he says, and even though you're nominally Christians, he doesn't comment on whether or not the genuineness of the faith Your prayer life reflects that. Because you are treating God, you are treating God like a mysterious genie in a bottle. Ask, what wishes do you want, and I'll fulfill them. And James is saying, you ask wrongly. Your prayer life reflects the selfishness and self-centeredness. So what is being manifested in your heart, the epithumia, the desires, and the, <coughs> the covetousness, is really a reflection of your relationship with God. Your selfish and self-centeredness is reflected in your prayer life. Now, I'm going to, some of you, I think I've mentioned this one or two times over the years in this group, but I have always loved the Royal Blue 911 Porsche automobile. And I don't know if you know what a 911 Porsche is. I mean, it's kind of the, at least in my vantage point, is one of the epitomes of a beautiful car. I mean, it really is. 
And Royal Blue is kind of a favorite color. So I, I humorously, honestly, I don't think I ever seriously prayed that that the Lord would give me a Royal Blue 911 Porsche. <laughs> well, he's never answered that prayer because I've never seriously. But a, several years ago, it's more like 20, I guess, my kids got me one. It's this big. It's in a plastic case on top of my dresser. Uh, and a very, very good friend of mine, um, when I was still in leadership at a local university, came down to my office. I had invited him down. I wanted to get to understand about our school. He, he, my son had uh, drawn, my son's a sort of a, a non-professional artist. He drew a wonderful, wonderful uh, chalk drawing of a Royal Blue Nylon Porsche. I have it in the frame. I still have it in the frame. And Dave said, wow, that is really good. Who did that? Guy, my son did. He said, you know, Dave, one of my goals is someday to drive a Porsche, 911 Porsche. He took keys out of his cut pocket and said, let's go for a drive. <laughs> and he drove. I didn't even know he drove one. And so we went out in Interstate 80. And I got the only time in my life, and probably the only other time I ever drive one, uh, I drove. It wasn't Royal Blue. It was gray, but it was a 911 Porsche. And I'm telling you all that, and I don't know why I'm telling you all that. But it, prayer, our prayer life should not reflect a selfish, self-centered set of prayer requests. That's what James is addressing here. He's saying you do not have because you're not asking. When you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You don't head to know. Your prayer life reflects the selfishness and self-centeredness, which is the problem. And so, to me, and, and my wife and I have really, over the years, talked a lot about this in terms of how we pray together. That our prayers reflect the values and virtues and standards of our God, not ours. And so our prayer life should be reflecting in terms of what we're asking is, it's not wrong to ask the Lord. I mean, ask, Jesus says that in the Lord's Prayer. The daily bread. I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking about those things. But James is addressing the motivation behind it. The Lord's not going to answer a prayer if you're going to spend it on your head and own. Then, in verse 4, after these blazing, convicting, compelling series of statements, he declares, you adulterous people. <clears throat> Do you understand why, James, it's really a metaphor? Why he would call them adulterous? <laughs> he explains it. In this question, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And the word friendship is phileo. We get our Philadelphia, which is phileo, adolfos, brotherly love. This is the friendship, the, not, not the agape, that self-centered or eros, the romantic love between a man and a woman. This is the friendship. This is the affection. Your affection is for the world. And if your affection is for the world, that's enmity. What's another word for enmity? 
Say it again. Hostility. Hostility. Even the word enemy. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's why I called this section in the notes, the way I outlined it, I called this section worldliness. Because James is writing to a group of people, 12 tribes scattered by believers, struggling with, this is an early book, AD 45, 46 is when it was written, struggling with, I've come out of Judaism, I live in a Greco-Roman world, how in the world do I mesh biblical Christianity with all this? That's what James said, They're trying to deal with the tension, but he's in your face in a lot of this stuff. And he says, and this is how I'm going to define worldliness. Worldliness is a believer. One foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of this world. You're trying to live in both. And so you accommodate to the things of the world and sort of accommodate to the things of God. Can you really do that? No, you can't do that very well. And that's what James is saying. You're, even your prayer life reflects this selfishness and self-centeredness, this head to known, this epithumia, the things he's been talking about. It reflects that. And God's not going to answer those kinds of prayers. As a matter of fact, you are adulterous people. And that is that phrase, <coughs> adulterous people, is all over the Old Testament prophets. It's in Jeremiah, it's in Isaiah, it's in Habakkuk. Because that was the charge that Yahweh Elohim leveled against Israel. You want to tip your hat to me on the Sabbath. You want to tip your hat to me on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But you also want to worship the Baals. And in the words of Jeremiah, you are whoring after other gods. And so James is lifting that phrase out of the Old Testament and applying it to these early leaders and members of the church. You want to tip your hat at Jesus Christ, but you also want to accommodate to the values, virtues, and standards of this world. You can't do that. So adultery is the metaphor that works. You make a commitment to your spouse, but you go after other women. You can't do that. That's a covenant to which God stood in attendance at that ceremony. That's what Malachi says. And so he's saying the same thing. You made a commitment to Jesus. That affects your relationship with the world. You can't be a double, and some of the phrase he's going to use in a minute, you can't be a double-minded person, literally two-souled person, with one foot in Christ's kingdom and one foot in the world. You can't do that. At least you cannot do it satisfactorily. And so he makes this incredible charge. You adulterous people. Friendship the world with the world is enmity with God. Hostility. You're an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, same word for Leo, a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's is there any ambiguity in that verse? I think it's not clear in that verse. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it's, it's just it's the typical James's typical style, very in-your-face. You have got to come to terms with how serious this is. That's 
well, I don't know if I want to go down this bunny trail, but I'll make this one statement. That's one of my greatest concerns about the American church. I mean that. Many evangelical Christians, especially in the United States, but it would apply Western Europe to a extent as well, are so accommodating to the world that they lose the distinctiveness of what it really means to be a Christian. And it's not need to, as I said earlier at the very beginning, to be in the world but not of the world. There's great tension in that call of Christ. There's great tension in that. And it's not an easy thing to understand. What does that mean? How do I live that way? But um, sometimes you can hardly tell the difference between. Well, yeah, you were talking about the wisdom before. <clears throat> we're taught that we have to be wise enough to maneuver in the world, but we're not the other. It's kind of a real balancing act. It is. You know, it's, be smart enough to maneuver with it. Yeah. There's really an interesting passage in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus says, those in the world are more shrewd than my people in my church. Now, I'm really paraphrasing what is a long, long passage. And he says, you need to be shrewd. And then he tells a story. He tells a parable to illustrate. Great to read that sometimes. That's one of, to me, that is one of the greatest challenges from the words of Jesus. As he talks about being in the world, but in another way, he uses that word shrewd. Because for the most part, I don't know about you, but for the most part, everything I've studied and read and all that I, I, I've learned over the years, often I do not associate shrewd as a virtue of the Christian life. Do you? I mean, to be shrewd. You think, well, that's kind of like a businessman, businessman who's real shrewd in their business, or a legal scholar who's real shrewd in how they're going to use the law to win a case. And Jesus says, no, I want my followers, my disciples to be shrewd. And that's why your, your, your use of the word navigate is part of shrewdness. How do I live for Jesus Christ, representing his values, his standards, his virtues, in a world that is totally opposite of everything he stands for? But he's called me to be in it, but not of it. So to be shrewd, I have to navigate through all. I have to make choices. And there are going to be certain things that might offend others, but I'm going to make certain choices. And for the most part, the Lord is honored when we make those kinds of choices. We're still there. We're still representing him. And I think another aspect of that is what Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, talks about being his salt and his light. Again, there are two metaphors, but he is salt and his light. This is what James is getting to here. It's the same thing that his brother talked about in his public ministry. And Jesus, James is just really throwing zinger after zinger after zinger at these early church people, Jews who had come to faith in Christ, that you guys have to really come to, per- come to terms with what it means to be a Christ, a Christ follower, what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. And Dr. to be in the world does not mean you're a friend of the world. Dr. Eckman? Yes, sir. Well, I, I think I think a lot of Christians <coughs> be, you know, be meek and uh, and from that standpoint, I think there's a lot of uh, Christians who are naive. Mm. And so I think that part of being discerning and shrewd when you're in the world and not to be so naive where the world basically just runs over you. And I think a lot of Christians miss that point. So 
thank you for thank you for talking about that. No, that that's a good comment too, Rob. It really is, and that does fit. I'm, I'm not sure if, if that's where you were going uh, or not, but I'll take it that direction. That's where that discernment, which is a quality of biblical wisdom as detailed in the Old Testament, where discernment is such an important skill to learn. Insight into the consequences of my choices. If I choose, even when I'm talking about, you know, we don't have as Christians the freedom to lie or the freedom to steal. We don't have the freedom to do that. But we are constantly bombarded with Processing, except what am I? What am I going to do with this? And we learn, at least I think we do. We learn if I go down this path, it's going to lead to this. So I'm not even going to go down this path. I have a very, um, I actually respect the guy. I just had coffee with him yesterday morning. Uh, he comes out of a family and situations where. Alcohol was very much a part. And you know, not kind of alcoholism, but alcohol is very much a part. It was very socially, thing, things that he did and so on. He said, I've made the decision to abstain from alcohol. Now, he's not looking at this as a legalistic standard. That's not what he's doing. He just said, you know, I, I've seen with some of my friends. He's in, in business. He's an executive in business. I've seen among my friends. I've seen among some colleagues what alcohol does to them. And so this is what he said, and he didn't use that word, but I'll use it. He's being discerning. He's not saying all Christians should totally abstain from alcohol. It's not what he's saying. He's saying for me. And so when I'm, he had told me this a couple months ago. I said, how are you doing with it? He said, well, I'm on my 48th day. So he's even counting. I mean, he's really serious about this. But he said, you know, the hardest thing for me is when my wife and I go out to social gathering, where it's just a common, a common part of the social gathering, a dinner, you know, a party or a reception or something like that, and to not just pick something up, glass of wine or pick up a mixed drink or whatever. And he said, that's, that's the hardest thing for me. The normal thing, because he's taken all the alcohol and beverages out of their home and so on. And all I'm using that just as an illustration. I don't think every Christian should abstain from alcohol. I can't sign that scripture. But I would say be wise and discerning about how you're going to use that. Those who don't get drunk. And Rome, Rome, 1 Corinthians 6 10, 6 12, 6 12 is a powerful verse for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's Paul. In non moral areas, I have freedom. But I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And so this guy is making that choice for him. And I, I just said to him, I said, you're being very wise and very discerning. Because you have seen in some of your friends and colleagues what has happened to them. And you don't want to, you don't want to do that. Where that actually is controlling you. And that's a wise, discerning thing. And that, man, that applies to almost everything in our lives. Not, not, in the, not only in the moral things of God, which are clearly stated in the Bible, a good example, that is Ten Commandments. But a lot of these non-moral areas of life, you still have to make a choice. And a discerning choice is I'm learning in my life personally to have insight into the consequences of the choices I make. And navigating through the, to use Bill's word, 
navigating through the, these things of life, you're always alert, always processing the choices you're making as you gain insight. That's what James is talking about. Because you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and satisfy both. Uh, it's twelve thirty. <coughs> Can I go on? Is that a rhetorical statement or a question? Uh, <laughs> I'll leave that to you. All right, verse five. This is a very, very difficult verse because honestly, this becomes problematic. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he? yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. I, I'm in verse 5. I just read verse 5. I mean, I mean your, your version. I mean the, the translation. I, I read from the ESV translation. Yeah, could you read it again? Sure, yeah. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us. Now, part, there are two challenges with this verse. Challenge number one is what scripture is he referring to? Because when you go, remember, <coughs> scripture in AD 45 would have been the Old Testament. And so you go back and look through the Old Testament, you, you really can't find a specific verse that he's directly word for word quoting. Well, uh, God says numerous times in the Old Testament, he's a jealous God. That's right. That's why most expositors think he's making a general quotation from the Old Testament prophets. So there's no doubt that the he is God. So the issue is divine jealousy. And God is, a, and, and you're correct, God, Jeremiah talks about this a number of times. God is a jealous God. Now, what, what does that mean? You're not to have any other God before me. And if you do, I will be jealous of that choice of yours. And so that's, yeah, that's divine, per, perfect jealousy. And God will not tolerate you worshiping someone or something else if you belong to him. So the, the idea of the, the quote, I think, is clear. The issue is divine jealousy. And if you are adulterous people, that's his charge in verse 4, and you're trying to have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, then that makes sense why the divine emotion of jealousy would come up. But what does he mean when he says jealously yearned over the spirit that he made to dwell within us? You have two choices. That's either the immaterial part of us, because every one of us is, we are made up of two parts, a body and a soul. Death is a separation of the two, resurrection rejoining the two. But the other is whether spirit's referring to the Holy Spirit. That's what this one says. The New King James says, uh, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us, here is Yeah, and then, and some of your translations, depending which one you're using, will capitalize spirit 
Some will not capitalize spirit. Really? Yeah. And it's because there's nothing in the text. The Greek, the Greek doesn't help you here <laughs> because Holy Spirit, capital S, spirit, small s, it's the same word in the Greek language. So it's really, so it's the issue is divine jealousy and divine jealousy as a God's response to an adulterous generation as trying to be friends with the world and friends with God. You can understand where the jealousy comes in. So the, I think for where we're at right now, man, I'm just going to leave it at that. The issue is divine jealousy. And God, God is upset with us as his children by faith in his son when we try to be double-souled, double-minded, one foot in the kingdom, one foot in, in the world. God's upset about that. You can't do that. But then he says, but he gives more grace. I'm really thankful that's in verse 6. But he gives more grace. It reflects, for me, it reflects God understands he doesn't approve of, he doesn't want us, but he understands the challenge of being in the world, but not of the world. And he gives his grace. And then he writes, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there he is very specifically quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34. That there's no doubt about. So you, you have you have three aspects here. As James is bringing this discussion, he's going to give an antidote to worldliness starting in verse 7, which we're running out of time. We're not going to get through this. But I, I, these three thoughts, thought number one in, in this response to worldliness, thought number one is divine jealousy. Thought number two, but God gives more grace. Thought number three, remember three, remember something. God always opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, three, divine jealousy, but God's a God of grace. But God's grace will be especially manifested and poured out to the humble, not to the proud. Why do you think God is so opposed to the proud? Why does God so detest the human emotion and attitude of pride? That's the basics of all sin. Right. Pretty strong. That's what Satan said. That's right. Paul tells us in, in his letter to Timothy that that was the fundamental sin of Satan. Proud. And Isaiah 14, 12, and following tells us that. He wanted to be like the Messiah. He's going to topple God from his throne. But for you and me, in, in our you know normal, ordinary lives in 2020, Pride. It removes the dependence on God 
right. and to our detriment. Right, right. That's a that's a good way to put it, Russ. It removes our and and how we're living and how we're acting and our perspective. It removes our dependence on God. I can handle it, God. I got this one. Or we exalt. Oh, look at what I did, or etc. A life of dependence, which is a quality of discipleship. A life of dependence is a life that is reflecting on the grace of God, a grateful, thankful spirit about everything, and acknowledging that everything I do is for the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. If that is really our perspective on things, he gives grace to the humble. Rob, you were going to say something. Put it another way, I guess. Another thing that seems to be pride undermines gratitude. Undermines what? Undermines gratitude. Absolutely it does. Oh, absolutely it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've learned, so can I tell you this? I've learned so much from my wife on this. She, I mean, honestly, man, she thanks the Lord for everything. I mean, she does. She just thanks the She's out walking. This we, we went out early this morning um, before I left. But we went out early this morning. We're walking around. She has lots of flowers and all that stuff. And she just kept, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful cluster of zinnias. Man, I would not even think about thanking the Lord for that cluster of zinnias. Would you? Maybe you I'm not. And I just thought, I thought, oh, my goodness. And then there were some other things that we had worked on earlier in the summer. Look, look what the Lord did with this. And I said, no, honey, I did that. No, no, it's just look what the Lord did with this. I mean, I dug it and you know, all that thing. But she's, really, she's absolutely right. And that's what Ron said is absolutely correct. To be proud is to, in effect, deny the spirit of gratitude that the Lord wants us to have about everything. Gratitude and thankfulness for everything. Because if God owns everything, which he does, and God is sovereign over everything, who are we to really think that we run anything? And so it's that kind of spirit. And and that's what James is talking about. Those three kinds. Divine jealousy, but God gives grace. But... God's grace will not necessarily be extended to the arrogant, defiant, proud person. And so therefore, James, and I'm just going to get started on this because there are 10 of these. James launches in, verse 7 through 10, launches into the cure for worldliness. That's how I put it in your notes. If the disease is worldliness which is what he's been talking about. Friendship with the world is an enemy of God. If that's the disease, what's the antidote? What's the cure? So what I'd like to do in the remaining minutes, and we're going to take all your 10 of these. They're, in Greek, this is going to really impress you. They're aorist imperatives. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything, but you know what imperative is. It's a command. There are three moods in, in, in the language, three moods in verb. They're either indicatives, imperatives, or subjunctives. These are imperatives. They're commands. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. That's a great word. We'll talk about that next week. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. <clears throat> so what, <coughs> excuse me, what James does here, he launches in, and this is, I've said it, and I'm going to say it again. He launches into, what's the antidote to the worldliness? And there are 10 imperatives. They're all interrelated and meshed together. But I have a couple of minutes. I'm going to start with the first two. And they immediately are connected. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The Greek word that translated submit is a military term. Literally, to be subordinated to someone. To come under someone's authority. To render to that someone absolute obedience. And so, if, you, if the disease is worldliness... Friendship the world with the world makes you an enemy of God, enmity with God, etc. The very first thing you need to do, fundamental to everything, is come once again under the authority of the Lord. Be subordinated to the authority of the Lord. Now that's almost like one of those, well, duh. But you see, if you got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, you have to take that foot in the world and get it back into the kingdom. So both feet are in the kingdom. Did that analogy work? You following? And I mean, it's 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 just it's fundamental. But the other side of that, if I can use now the analogy of a coin, the other side of that coin is resist the devil. Literally, the word is another military term. Resist is to take your stand against the devil. The Roman soldier in the, in the time of James and Paul and all, Jesus and all, Roman soldier wore hobnail boots. You know what hobnail is? Hobnail and they would dig those hobnail boots into the ground, take their stand. That's the language he's using here. And so... This isn't, a, this isn't a passive. This is a literally dig those hobnail boat boots into the ground and take your stand against. Because the devil, and, and that, you know, there are several words used. Satan means adversary. Devil is a diabolical one who slanders against God. That's what it all means. And so... You have something here, though, that has a little bit of a promise attached to it. Submit, therefore, to the God. Resist the devil. And what's the promise? He will flee from you. That's the promise. Let me ask you a question. You know the answer. Who modeled that for us? Jesus did. Remember the temptation? Full account of that is in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, Jesus modeled that for us. But he resisted the devil 
the slanderer one, the diabolical one who slanders God. He resisted Satan by quoting scripture over and over and over again. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to make one more sentence statement and I've got to, I've got to quit. But you and I are involved in spiritual warfare. And we can't ignore that. We can't be passive about it. And the complement to this, complement to this passage, is Ephesians 6.10 and following, putting on the whole armor of God. And so it's, it's that active mindset every single day is I am submitting to the Lord and taking my stand against the evil one. And that you, you, every day, that's it. The spiritual warfare until we die or go to be with the Lord, that is what we're engaged in. We dress for battle each day with the whole armor of God, as, as, as Paul talks about. It. So we're going to go over this again. I'm going to start again with verse 7 next week. But these are the antidote. This is the cure for worldliness. And it's, it's marvelous. I've preached on this many times. It's a marvelous passage of Scripture. That is a constant reminder for you and me. All right, man, I'm going to pray here and I'm going to let you go. Because <coughs> we have to go out into this blessed weather that the Lord created for us. And we want to have gratitude to him for the day, to use the word to rob. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his faithfulness to us as he made the decision to add to his deity humanity, come to this rebellious planet, die for this rebellious planet on a cruel cross, be resurrected in power and authority, now at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, go get your church. All of that is part of what we believe. Therefore, the values and virtues and standards of our Savior and Lord are important to us. We want to understand what they are. And as a result, too, we want to be men, not only of strong, determined faith, but men who are wise, men who are discerning, men who are careful, men who are gaining insight into consequences of choices we make, even in the non-moral areas of life, men who are deeply committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, men who are not proud, but men who are humble and dependent on you. And if next week we develop these 10 marvelous imperatives, we want to be reminded again that to live for you, to love, walk in loving obedience to you is not passive. It's an active faith, a faith that's determined, focused, forward-looking, filled with hope, and undergirded by faith and trust in you, a God who's good, a God who has our best interests at heart, and a God who's made many, many promises to us. We trust you. We love you. We want to commit ourselves to you in a fresh new way. Dismiss us now with your blessing in your son's name. Amen.